This morning we're going to be considering living for God. Living for God. And please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through to 4 this morning. I'll read them now and we'll consider them verse by verse in a short while. 1 Peter chapter 4, reading from verse 1. For as much as then as Christ have suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Matthew chapter 16, I don't know if you, anyone offhand knows that chapter. It's a chapter that I always remember for an amazing confession of the Apostle Peter. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 is that chapter where Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. And what did Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amazing words from Peter. And he was given those words by God. In other words, they proceeded from his heart because God had given him that faith. However, a few verses on from that great confession from Peter, Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Taking Jesus, the Son of God, and rebuking him. But that's precisely what we're told Peter did in Matthew 16, verse 22. And he said to Jesus, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. That was his response to Jesus, who said that he must suffer and die. Clearly, at the time, Peter just did not get it, that Christ, the Son of the living God, must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised again on the third day. The the penny had not dropped at that time. However, About 30 years had passed by, by the time that Peter wrote this epistle and in various places he spoke about the suffering and the death of Jesus, such as in chapter 2 verse 21 where he said, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. When we looked at that verse, whenever it was, some weeks ago now, we saw that when it comes to the reason for the suffering 
and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is something that is applicable to him and him only, in that he alone suffered and was put to death in the flesh as the sacrificial lamb of God, and with his stripes all who trust in him are healed. You, dear Christian, have been reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. Also, since the Lord Jesus Christ suffered unto death, all you who belong to him need not imagine that you are exempt from persecution. And this is what we looked at some weeks ago. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We see this to be the case in these last days. For example, in the West, open hostility towards Christians is on the increase. And in various parts of the world, Christians are being told to renounce Christ or what? Or to die. That's the choice they face. Renounce Christ or get your head chopped off. However, what we have in chapter 4 and verse 1 is different in that even though Peter once again spoke about the suffering of Jesus, he did not once again apply that to Christians suffering for Christ's sake. Let's have a look again at verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ have suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For thee, for he that have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. The suffering of Jesus that is spoken of in verse 1 is one that culminated in death. That can be seen very clearly if you just look up to chapter 3 and verse 18. Peter said, For Christ also have suffered once for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that is us, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life on behalf of all who trust in him. Also, at the cross, he paid the debt for their sins when he poured out his precious blood and he laid down his life. Consequently, according to verse 1, you, dear Christian, are to arm yourself with the same mind. What does that mean? You are to identify with the finished work of Jesus in his suffering unto death and his resurrection, as the Apostle Paul did when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. In other words, having died with Jesus, having been raised up to newness of life in Jesus, you live a resurrection life 
through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, what I just read there, I am crucified with Christ. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I would encourage you, if you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour, to read Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, learn it, pray it and live it by God's enabling grace. At the end of verse 1, Peter said, For he that have suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Having been buried with Jesus and raised up to newness of life in him, you, dear Christian, are said to have ceased from sin. Before anyone says anything, Peter was most certainly not saying that you are now living a sinlessly perfect life. Although there are some professing Christians who vainly imagine that they are doing precisely that. I'm certainly not one of them. I can only speak for myself here. In fact, I'm with the Apostle Paul who said, In me, that is in the flesh, dwelleth no good thing. That's me. And then there was that Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who said, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Again, that's me. Even so, sin ought not reign in those who are crucified with Christ, who are raised up to newness of life in him and who draw on his enabling grace as living branches, savingly united to Jesus, who is the true vine. When we looked at water baptism recently, we turned to Romans chapter 6, And what we're looking at today takes us back to that chapter. Once again, please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. If we look at verses 6 and 7, it might help us to understand what Peter was talking about when he spoke about us ceasing from sin. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where Paul said, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ, sorry, with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Where Paul said, knowing this, he wasn't just talking about having a head knowledge of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He was talking about you, dear Christian, experiencing it in your born-again life. It is not only the knowledge but also the experience of a Christian that his old man is crucified with Christ. When you appreciate that being crucified means means being put to death, the old man cannot refer to the old sinful nature. 
Look at verse 6 again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Crucified means being put to death. Now, I just ask you, is your old sinful nature dead? Has it been put to death? I say that because my sinful nature is most certainly not crucified, it most certainly is not dead. Therefore, it makes more sense to understand the old man as referring to everything that you used to be and everything that you used to have when Adam was your head. For example, when you were in Adam, you were an enemy of God, but now God is your heavenly father. You used to be under the law, but now you are under grace. You used to be without righteousness, except for your own worthless self-righteousness, but now you have the righteousness of Jesus. You used to be under condemnation, but now you are an heir of God and joint heir with Christ. Since all that you used to be and all that you had in Adam have been put to death, crucified at the cross, and you are now savingly united to Jesus, the result must surely be that the body of sin, in other words, the body that is controlled by sin, might be destroyed in the words of verse 6. Let's have a look at that again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that's all that you were, all that you had in Adam, crucified, dead and gone. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Again, can you honestly say that since you have been born again, sin is destroyed in your body? Is that not what it's saying there in verse 6? That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin? Well, speaking personally, all I can say is no. The body of sin my the body that is in the sin that is in my body rather has not been destroyed it's just as well that the greek word that has been translated destroyed also means deprived of force deprived of force therefore since you are crucified with christ all that you used to be in adam has gone all that you had in adam has gone your identity is now in jesus Sin is deprived of its force and its power that henceforth you should not serve sin nor be enslaved by it. You are now a servant of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said that, we still thank God that when we sin and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we continue to pray forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us as Christians as the years roll on in our born again lives we become not less but more acutely aware of our sinfulness 
I'm certainly more aware of my sinfulness now than I was 28 years ago when I became a Christian. Acknowledging that even in our deathbeds, we will have every reason to repent and to seek forgiveness from our loving Heavenly Father. That said, the fact of the matter is that all who are crucified with Christ and are risen with him no longer delight in sin, but they hate it, they abhor it, and they fight it in God's strength and with his enabling grace. That brings us to 1 Peter, we're finished with Romans chapter 6. We can go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 2. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. The consequence of ceasing from sin, in other words, no longer being a slave of sin, is that you live the rest of your time for God, and not for yourself and not for others, but for God ultimately. You seek to glorify God. You'll notice that verse 2 is worded in such a way as to highlight the brevity and the fleetingness of life, which of course it is. Enough time was wasted on serving yourselves and your various idols before you were born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Whatever time you have left, dear Christian, you use it to do the will of God. In verse 2, Peter talked about doing the will of God. That is perfectly reasonable. After all, everyone in the whole world ought to make it their business to do the will of God, their maker. The world does not do the will of God, that's for sure. We all know that. The good news is that the Son of God came into the world and he did perfectly do the will of God. And that included fulfilling the law's demands for people like us who were at enmity with God, hostile towards God, and he carried their sins in his own body on the tree. If you are a Christian, I trust that you fully appreciate that you were no better than anyone else. Before God graciously saved you from your sins through faith in his dear son, you most certainly did not spend your time doing his will. That said, if by the grace of God, verse 1 applies to you and your identity really is now in Jesus, then doing the will of God really is your prayer. It is your heart's desire, or at least it ought to be. You now pray, thy will be done. That's something you would not have done before becoming a Christian. Thy will be done. That prayer proceeds from a heart in which Jesus dwells by faith and your heavenly Father hears and answers such prayers. Verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of God, uh, to the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, 
and abominable idolatries. Verse 3 is a list of some of the evils that you were governed by in the past. When you were in Adam and the body of your sin was not being deprived of its power. When Jesus was not your saviour, when you were not savingly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you had no interest in serving Jesus and glorifying him with a heart full of praise and gratitude for what God has done for you at the cross. First on that list is lasciviousness. That word characterises a person who has no moral restraints, especially when it comes to sexual behaviour. Next is lusts, which refers to evil desires. We saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 14, where Peter said, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, before you became a Christian, before you were saved. Instead of pandering to lust, Christians earnestly seek God's enabling grace to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. (coughs) Next is excess of wine, in other words, drunkenness. That needs no explanation. Also, it goes without saying that drunkenness is not conducive to living soberly in this present world and to doing the will of God. Therefore, even though the world may see little or nothing wrong with getting drunk, Christians quite rightly hate it. Then there are revelings that refers to the parties and feasts that are part and parcel of engaging in sexual immorality and drunken orgies. Likewise, banquetings may refer to banquets where people get themselves blind drunk. I may as well confess to having once been part of that scene and of various other ungodly scenes when I lived to the lusts of men. But by the grace of God, I no longer want anything to do with any of that stuff. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through to 11, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, including me. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God for that. Last on the list in verse 3 is abominable idolatries. God has commanded that we are not to worship idols, but that is precisely what the ungodly do. They worship carved idols, images, they worship money, they worship their possessions, and they worship the creature rather than the creator. They bow down and worship anything rather than bow down and worship God. 
That was the big sin of the Jews of old. They, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, the Lord said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Yet by the grace of God, the person who trusts in Jesus feeds on him and that person's thirst is forever satisfied by him and his enabling grace. And look at verse 4. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. Verse 4 is what happens when you are someone who has been transferred by God out of the darkness and, and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You seek to do the will of God and no longer the lusts of men. Verse 4 is what happens when by the grace of God you renounce sinful activities, the activities of verse 3 as you are led by the Lord Jesus Christ along the paths of righteousness for his namesake. You're altogether different, a new creature in Christ. Different priorities, different desires. Blessed are you if people think it's strange that you do not fulfil the lusts of the flesh as they do. Blessed are you if people say all manner of evil against you falsely for Christ's sake. Broadly speaking, as a church, we need to guard against catering for and pandering to the world and turning this building into a place of entertainment and idolatry that titillates and satisfies the lust of the flesh, but has little or nothing to do with worshipping God in the beauty of holiness. It's so tempting to conform. There's so much pressure to conform to the world. We have to resist that with God's grace. As for you, dear Christian, pray that you do not put your own interests before the will of God, like the unregenerate Jews of old did when they came out of Babylonian captivity. They occupied their time doing what? Building their own homes whilst leaving the temple of God in disrepair. In heartfelt gratitude to God, your Heavenly Father, who delivered his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to death for your sins and raised him up again for your justification, may each one of you earnestly desire and seek to do his will for his glory as the Holy Spirit works in you. Amen. We'll finish with 675. 675. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay.